Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace, and welcome everybody watching online and our live sites and our Montrose building. Thanks for joining us as well. There's still some uh, folks here at Gent Road looking for seats, so maybe scooch in, or there's plenty of room in the front row. Come hang out with Pastor Jeff. Uh, but we'd love to connect with you. It's a good time to remind us of Saturday services. There's plenty of parking, plenty of seating, and uh, 2% off your tithe if you come on Saturday night. And so uh, maybe take advantage of that. Hey, before we jump into uh, to the scripture we're going to look at this weekend, uh, I want to just double-click again on uh, these Christmas programs. Um, if you're a part of the family of grace, really encourage you to take advantage of those. We put lots and lots of energy and effort into those, and we don't do it to be the cool church at Christmas. Uh, we do it because our community is so apt to connect to grace and to connect, more importantly, to Christ through those programs. And so they kind of work in that way. And so I bet you if we took a, a quick survey and said, um, how many of you made your first connection to grace through a Christmas program, a bunch of hands would go up, and then many of us have accepted Christ at that program. So that's why we do that. And they're going to be great. Lots of energy and excitement and lots of subwoofer. If you have a heart arrhythmia, it will straighten out by the end. It's great. And uh, it's, it's going to be a, a full concert that way. And the good news of Jesus is going to be crystal clear through all of it. What we want you to do is invite folks, like take advantage of that in that way, please, and invite folks and your, uh, your neighbors and your roommates, et cetera, and, and help them to make that connection. If you're watching online, it's a great time to come in and bring some folks uh, in with you and make those connections as well, or even the live sites uh, or the Montrose building, everything will be here at Jet Road. And so just take advantage of it. Lots of work and lots of effort. It's gonna be a blast. And uh, we want you to be a part of it, but mostly we want, we want Jesus to make sense to people. And so that's why we do it, okay? All right, we're in a, a series that uh, we've been looking at kind of over the Christmas season called These Moments of Wonder, been in it for the last few weeks. And we're asking this question, we're kind of identifying this reality, right, that there are these moments of wonder where God does something and we would look and say, what's that all about, right? Why, why this? Why me? How come? How in the world is this ever going to play out in my life? And we would wonder at God in those moments. We're asking the question, can we flip that coin? Can a moment of wonder become a moment of wonder, where we would look at God and say, God, you're good. God, you're loving. God, we worship you. God, we yield to you. And so we've been looking at that and looking kind of through the, the Christmas narrative. If you thought of your nativity set on the back of your piano, right, and you just started moving around that, there's Mary kneeling, Joseph standing, Jesus in the manger with some kind of halo around his head because he glowed apparently <clears throat> as a child. Uh, and then there's like three shepherds, a young one, a kneeling one, and then an older one with a lamb around his neck, that guy. There's always that guy, staff's missing. And then there's, um, there's the wise men, right? There's three of them, one kneeling, one standing, one looking this way off that. You can never get him to look at Jesus. He's always off that way somewhere. 
a camel, a donkey, and a camel kneeling, a camel standing, and then like a donkey, and usually a cow, and then sheep. And you never know what to do with a sheep, and they don't stand upright. And so just think about like your Christmas activity set. We're kind of moving around that a little bit and uh, playing with that and saying, let's remember like those people that are represented in that little set are real people. Christmas is a historical account. It's a documented account in the scripture. So it's not metaphor. It's not legend. It's not myth. It's not pretend. These are real people that God showed up in their lives in a real way, and their lives really did kind of blow up, right? So we looked at Joseph one week. He said, Joseph's a real guy, Jesus shows up in a, a, a real way in his life. God does, shows up in a real way in his life. The angel interacts with him. A guy that had a career, a guy that was known for following God. He was faithful to the law. A guy that had a plan. God shows up, his life blows up. And really, Joseph had to live with the consequences of that the rest of his life. So he had this moment of wonder, God, how come, why, what am I supposed to do with this? And when you track the details we have about his life in Scripture, you see that his moment of wonder became a moment of wonder. Joseph worshipped Jesus, and he allowed himself to be lost in the shadow of Jesus. We never talk about Joseph without talking about his son. So he's always in the shadow of Jesus, and he allowed that, and he embraced that because of how God wanted to interact with him. And then last week, we talked about Mary. Mary's a kid, how we'd think of her, 14, 15-year-old girl or woman. That's about how uh, old people would be when they got married in the ancient world. So, but she's still young and processing in a young way. The miracle, the Holy Spirit miraculously gets, uh, allows her to become pregnant. The God who created us out of dust created life in her womb, and and she's pregnant and unmarried. Her life blows up, right? You're trying to tell your dad, you're trying to tell Joseph, your friends, because everybody believes that the Holy Spirit got you pregnant, right? So nobody's going to buy that. And so her life is in turmoil. She's afraid, but her response is, God, I'm your servant. So use my life however you need to and want to use my life. And that moment of wonder, how, how come, why me, what am I supposed to do? becomes a moment of wonder where in her song, she's glorifying God, praising God, and literally saying, thank you for what you've done for me, not to me, but for me, and you allowed me to be a part of all this. So that's what we've been talking about here these last couple of weeks, and it's on the website, it's on the app, it's on the podcast, that stuff's always free at Grace, but they're worth a listen, right? If you're traveling for the holidays or something, it may be worth a listen because those real people, God shows up in these real ways and their lives are deeply affected and, and we're like that. We're real people. God moves our lives in very real ways and we would go through that struggle of having a moment of wonder, but how do I allow that to become a moment of wonder and what does that look like, okay? So this weekend, I wanna talk about another set of these people and we're gonna talk about what the Bible calls, or who the Bible calls the Magi, and we're just going to look at them this weekend. So if you got a Bible, grab it. It's Matthew chapter 2. It's uh, in, the Bible's in the chairs. It's page 783, and those Bibles, and all of this is on the app, of course, if you want to look at that. So <clears throat> Magi. So when you think about Magi, 
Uh, we think about them in the nativity set. You always set up your three wise men in the nativity set, and they don't belong there. They, they should not be in the nativity set. I'll explain that here in a second. But look at verse 1, chapter 2 of Matthew. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him, right? So Magi show up here in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is two to three years after Jesus was born. So that's why your wise men don't belong in the nativity set. They're not supposed to be there with the shepherds and the kneeling donkey and all that kind of stuff. They should, they're later. They're like off. They should be like not on the piano, like out in the, like the laundry room kind of a thing. Right? So they're, they're later on. So, so they come later. A couple years have passed, and they're looking for the child. The Bible says they come from the east to Jerusalem. So this is who the Magi are, because this is going to help us get our head around it. The, the Magi are not uh, magicians. Uh, they're probably not even like pagan priests. The way that we would think about Magi is ancient scientist is how we would think of it. The way that you might think of an ancient uh, Egyptian scientist who used the stars to make sure the pyramids were plumb, right? By the way, they weren't built by aliens, despite what history chance says. So, like, so, like, they would use math to do that. The ancient Greeks would use math. They were scientists. They would use the stars to align things, to sail the seas. The Romans did that. That's more the camp that the Magi should be thought of. They're, they're astronomers, and they're looking at the stars. Was that mixed with religion and politics? And yeah, because it's definitely the way the ancient world worked. But they're not astrologers. They're not necessarily trying to read the future. They're, they're noting and moving and doing that scientifically. And so that's who they are. They're the, they would have like an ancient equivalent of a PhD. So these are highly educated. They are uh, wealthy. They are connected to wealth and power. They're not kings. Uh, that's just the song, not what the Bible says. So they're not three kings, uh, but they're magi. They're, they're students, they're teachers, they're, they're educated and connected guys. The Bible says they come from the east. So most scholars uh, believe, and I agree, that that's probably like ancient Iran, Iraq, maybe as far over into what we would call Yemen, so way over in the east, and they traveled up to 900 miles to, to get to Jerusalem because they saw this star. So they're studying the skies, which they would have done kind of nightly. This phenomenon peaks up, and, and they notice it. They would have noticed it. They would have documented it, because this is what they do. And they see this star, and they wonder, what is that star? Where did it come from, and what does it represent? And we believe, I believe this, and, and most scholars agree, that in that region, there would have been displaced Jewish people 
ancient Jewish people, some of them maybe even scholars. There was a lot of persecution, and the 12 tribes of Israel had scattered. In fact, the book of James, which was written by Jesus' brother, his half-brother James, addresses his letter to the 12 tribes scattered. So persecution, the Romans are occupying Israel, the tribes scattered. There was probably a group of Jewish people there, a community of them, Maybe some of them, also scholars, worked with the Magi. And when the Magi said, what is that? They would have said, well, there is this, what we would call Old Testament prophecy. There's this thing that said a star is going to appear and it's going to announce the arrival of the Messiah. And that might be this. It could be the fulfillment of that prophecy. And something clicked with the Magi, a curiosity, a draw, a beckoning, and they needed to know if that is this, what does this mean to me? If that is this, what does this mean to me? We need to understand that. That's unusual that's not been there before, that's not normal, and it means something, and they're saying it might mean this, and if that is this, then we wanna know what that means. And so they head off to Jerusalem, and we catch them here in Matthew chapter two. When they get to Jerusalem, they're asking about the king of the Jews. They're asking in context of this prophecy. Is that this, we're looking for the king of the Jews. We saw his star and it rose and we have come to worship him. Now, the Magi are real people and they're wrestling with the types of questions that we wrestle with as real people, right? And we can learn something here from what they've done. Do you ever wonder why you have a curiosity about God? You ever wonder why the, the draw to Jesus, the draw to the idea of a God still takes hold in your heart and in the hearts of humanity? One of the things that I think is fascinating, I think about this all the time, in our modern world where we have so many answers, all the technology, all the science, so many answers, in our modern world where we can think that we can explain away the miraculous. You know, well, this miracle happened, this miracle happened. Ah, oh, you don't understand. It's science. It, this is what happened. This is what happened. The ancient people just didn't understand it. In our modern world where we think we have so many answers, why today do human beings still have to solve the God question? With all that we know and all of our education over all time, why is it that every human being on every spot on the planet, over every culture, through every language, still has to resolve the question of God in their heart. Why is that? Even if we're opposed to God, right? I, I love uh, hanging out with people who think they're atheists. And they, they're just fun for me. And so it's interesting to me because they'll say a version of, I don't believe in God. And I'll say, well, I don't believe in atheists. And so we'll get to laughing about that a little bit. And they'll say, well, why don't you believe in atheists? I said, I don't believe they exist. Well, why not? 
because we don't spend a lifetime studying, documenting, laying down a path of logic and reason about things that we don't actually believe. I've never written a book about why unicorns don't exist because I just don't believe in unicorns. But when I give myself to something, when I, when I study and I watch seminars, I know all the arguments, I push against everything and I try to undo it piece by piece, the only thing that would motivate me to do that is a, is a residue of a fear that God might actually exist. I have to shut it down. Romans 1 even talks about that. That I have to close my heart to God because it's natural for me to open my heart to Him. Why do we still wrestle with the God question? We have so many things to distract us. Why do we pray? Even, even if we're not into Jesus, how come when we're in trouble and we have some version of like a foxhole moment, why do we pray? How come... How come worship, we come in and we worship and we, even if we're just watching it and not participating in it, why does it, why does it soothe our soul still? Why is that? And why are we drawn to Christmas? How come, how come Jesus isn't just myth or legend? Why isn't he just a different version of Santa or Rudolph or Frosty or you know, whoever, why, why are we still curious enough about Jesus that once a year we would engage that conversation at one level or another, right? Well, my mom makes me do it. No, she doesn't. Your mom, there's all kinds of things your mom doesn't make you do. Why is it? What is it that draws us into that? See, this is where the wise men, the, the magi would have been these are non-religious, maybe pagan, maybe, maybe a different religion, a godless religion, but, but they're certainly not Christ followers, and they're certainly not Old Testament scholars looking for signs. They came into something, and when they saw it, it caught them, and one, somebody said, that might be this, and this is what this means to you. They loaded up the camels, man. And 900 miles later, when you have a curiosity about God and you have a question about God and a question about faith and an and, and odd draw to spiritual things, could it be, just saying, just wondering out loud, could it be that God is beckoning you would it be worth, I mean, if we've tried all kinds of things to put that question away and not deal with it anymore, would it be worth loading up the camels and moving that direction just to find out what's there? And God does that in our lives. And he did that with the Magi. And instead of being kind of hard-hearted or closed-minded about it, they said, okay, let's, let's just go check it out. If you think that is this and this is what this means to me, let's track it down and see what's there. Guys, listen, God isn't afraid of your questions and he's not offended that you ask them. God is not afraid of your lack of faith and he's not offended that you don't have it. 
God's not afraid of your reasoning and, and, and your kind of your modern sophistications. That doesn't bug God at all. But it doesn't mean he's going to turn the star off in your life. Because he might love you enough to keep that thing burning. And maybe the response is not to look the other direction. Maybe the response is to load up the camels and see what's out there. So they head off. And they go all the way to Jerusalem. In verse 3, chapter 2, Matthew, they show up there. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him because he had called together, uh, when he had called together all the, uh, the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet was, uh, has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may worship him. So they load up, they're chasing the star. They want to find out is that is this and what would this mean to me? They go to Jerusalem and they show up and they interact with Herod. Now, this is a whole interesting thing. So the, the Magi take off. There's not three of them. That, they, there's three of them in your nativity set, but these would have been wealthy, educated, connected guys who had all kinds of treasures with them. So they're probably more like in a caravan. There's probably a bunch of them. There's probably a military escort with them. There's certainly like a supply chain with them because there weren't a lot of like Arby's to stop at along the way in the ancient world. So they got their food, they got their water, they got everything with them. And they show up at the gates of Jerusalem and they're looking for the, the, the origins of this star. That gets Herod's attention, right? So who is Herod? Herod, the way that we would think of Herod is he was like a governor over the region is probably the way that we would think of him. That Rome ruled everything and all the power was in Rome and Herod would have been like assigned to, to govern this region and his job was to keep the people satisfied, to keep the peace, and to keep the taxes flowing. And as long as he was doing that, Rome was happy and he could keep his job. Herod, we know a little bit about Herod because of extra biblical history. So Herod built all kinds of fortresses, Masada, things like that. Herod allowed the, the temple to function again. And so the Jewish leaders, as part of how he pacified them, is he allowed them to operate there. And the, what we would think of as the Temple Mount, you see on TV all the time now. But the, the Jewish folks had it then and they were exercising uh, their religious freedoms there. He was also a tyrant, and so he would like kill quickly. He was known for killing his own children. How about that? What Father's Day card do you send for that, right? And so he's known for killing his own children. His power was known, and he certainly was the most powerful man in the land. And when these guys show up, this is more like a government-to-government -government interaction. And they say to him, hey, we saw the star, and we want to find the, the ruler, the king of the Jews, this large group of people that you're supposed to have control over. 
So Herod would, would blow a gasket on that because his power would be threatened. And so he gets deceitful here and he's like, oh, I also would like to worship the king of the Jews. When did you see this star? What's the exact date that it showed up? And they would have known. And where's it supposed to be? He calls in the chief priests and the people's teachers and says, hey, what are those prophecies? Because they, they know about the prophecies. I don't know about that. What are the prophecies? Oh, Bethlehem. Okay. And he's fearful of his power, so much so that later on, after what we're talking about today, the scripture says Herod committed an infanticide. He sent soldiers out to Bethlehem and killed every child to and under because he's trying to wipe out this this king of the Jews that had been born there, okay? This is what's gonna happen. When you see a star, when you have a curiosity, when God won't let that go, when you keep wrestling with the God question, when you decide, you know what, let's just load up the camels. Let's go check that out and see what's going on. Because if that is this, this could really impact me. And so we're gonna check it out. As you take that journey, this is the reality of what's going to happen. You're going to run into different versions of Herods in your life. You're going to run into people who are going to stand in opposition, who are going to stand in the way, and who do not have the same goals of finding the answers that you do. Right? It's just different versions of it. Friends who are going to look at you and say, wait a minute, you got into this Jesus thing. I mean, you become a radical Christian. You're like joined a cult. You're like going to church solid once out of every five weeks now. What has happened to you, right? All the way into relationships where somebody's gonna look at you and say, if you wanna chase that, you're gonna do that without me. I didn't sign up to date Bible boy. I didn't sign up to date, you know, church girl. And if you want that, and you think that might be this, then I'm out. I don't want anything to do with that. You're going to run into the, the college professor. He's going to tell you that everything you've ever been taught, everything you've ever believed is antiquated and old-fashioned and ridiculous. And here's all these evidences of why the Bible isn't true and there is no God. And most of them have honestly just never looked at the other side of the argument. But they're going to attack you deeply. You're going to be foolish and dumb for chasing that star. You're going to run into a culture that does not agree and does not want with what you want. Never, never in the history of of, the, the, of Christianity have the church and the culture ever agreed unless the church compromises truth. So we would never look at morality the same way as any culture that we're in. We would never look at the purpose of money the same way. We would never look at the exercise of power the same way. And so you're going to run into that Herod. You're going to look and say, that is compelling to me. I want to know if that is this because I'm missing this in my life. And a culture is going to come in and say, no, 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 you don't need this. You need more of what you already have and have not found happiness in. More sex, more money, more power. If you just had more of it. So you're going to run into that here. All the way down to people who will hate you because you even believe that that could be true. Everybody who's a star follower, you know what they're like. You know what they think. You know what their positions are politically. You're always going to run into some version of Herod in your life. 
It's fascinating what the wise, what the, what the magi did. They talked to her, they went on their way, and then the very end of the narrative, I'll read it to you in a minute, they, they, they're getting ready to go back, because Herod's like, if you find him, which they do, he's like, you gotta come back and tell me so that I can worship him, right? And so an angel shows up and says, hey, don't go back and tell Herod, because the child's gonna be in danger. And so the Bible says the Magi went back a different route. Now that feels like a little bit like a, a, a footnote in the story and the narrative of Christmas. And actually it's a very big deal that they did that. Because remember, these aren't three guys that are slipping in and out of like houses. This is a caravan of people. They, they don't just blend in to what's going on. And they would have represented some kind of a government to government interaction at some level of, of like a formal type of a thing. They would have had to get permission to go across these boundaries. Herod had an army, and so they're gonna have to deal with all of that. So they also would have known Herod's reputation he kind of had a reputation of, of having a bit of a bloodlust and even being hyper-paranoid. So when they decided to go back a different route, they were making a mammoth decision about their well-being, what would happen to them back home. And they were making a grand statement about what they found when they found the child, they, they determined that that was this and this meant something to them. And they risked, they risked life and they risked stability, they risked position. The child that they found was so compelling to them that they were able to gamble everything that they had to gain what they just found. You're going to run into Herods. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. It's fine. It's normal. It's normal. Jesus promises. Jesus never promises that you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and your hair will grow back if you'll just follow him. What he promises you is trouble. He promises that people will hate you for following him. It's totally normal. It's totally normal. But on your journey from curiosity to an answer, you're going to have to decide what to do with the critics. And you're going to have to decide how to move through them, whether to yield to them, or whether the star is so compelling that you keep moving. The narrative goes on, verse 9, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So they leave the king, and the star comes back up. This star, it... it there's a lot of curiosity about this star. It's fascinating to think about. I don't want to go too deep because it's a distraction. It's not the point of the story, but it is fascinating to think about because when you read this narrative and you understand it, it doesn't seem like everybody could see the star. It seems like the star was a surprise to Herod and the star was a surprise to the teachers of the law and, and the, the chief priests because they, didn't, they weren't doing these 
prophecy connections like the people in the Far East were doing. So it doesn't seem like everybody can see the star, and then it seems like the star moves. Well, it does. That's what the Bible says. So it went ahead of them, and it like led them to the house with the child. So when you think about the star, it seems like the star is less of like the sun or the North Star kind of thing. It seems like it's more like the pillar of fire in the Old Testament that led the Israelites through the Exodus or the cloud that led them through the day. It seems like it's more that kind of a supernatural interaction. But whatever it was, it was clear to the Magi and not super clear to everybody else or Herod would have just followed the star to the house and dealt with Jesus himself. And the star was there for them and it was leading them to Christ. Did you catch that? It's really important. You should write this down. The star was there for them and it was leading them to Christ. Somehow this whole thing plays out where they look and say, I see that. Somebody says, well, that might be this. If that is this, what could that mean to them? Load up the camels. We're going to go that way. We're going to push through the skeptics. And that thing that is leading us, that thing that God is beckoning us with, that beacon, that curiosity, doesn't lead us to spirituality. It doesn't lead us to simply like a higher power. It doesn't lead us to inward enlightenment. It doesn't lead us to like healthy balance, right? I saw the star, so I started doing yoga. I became a vegan and I followed the star, right? It doesn't lead us to like healthy balance. It leads us specifically to Christ. And the star went ahead of them over the house. They knocked on the door. They opened it. There's Mary. And there is Jesus, the child. And they found Christ. And they bent their knee and yielded themselves and worshiped Christ. The math, that being this, that math translated into them not as like a life dream a purpose, some kind of like inner fulfillment. It translated to them as a Messiah, a Savior, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. The prophecy that is tied to the star played out and they believed the prophecy. So much so that they didn't go back to Herod and they risked their life to go the other direction. As God calls you, why can't you get away from the God question? Right? I mean, we have so, we, you got jobs, you got lives, now we got Disney Plus. I mean, why can't, I, my television hasn't shut off for three months. Like, why, why can't we get away from the God question? Why? Why is that star hung in your life? And who does it lead to? Not faith. Not wellness. There's good news of great joy, which is for all the people. Today in St. David, the Savior has been born. 
And his name is Christ the Lord. And what they found was their God, their Messiah, the forgiveness of their sin, their redemption, their rescuer. And that's who they bowed their knee to. Could it be that the reason the God question won't go away is because God loves you? And it's not just that you can't satisfy it, it's that he won't quit asking. Could it be that the kindness of God leads us to repentance? Could it be that that the reason you see the star, like do you guys, anybody, anybody else in the family, anybody else in the dorm? Because that's just driving me nuts. Could it be that God knows you and God loves you and that what God did for you, he did for many, but it's, it's you who have that curiosity. Could it be that the reason that Christmas kicks that stuff up again? Why? I mean, how many Christmases have you gone through? Could it be the reason that Christmas kicks that stuff up again is because God loves you so much that he wants that restlessness in your heart. He wants to keep bugging you because he wants you to load up the camels and come find your Messiah. See? Maybe Christmas has a deeper meaning to you because of what God wants to do in your life, right? How come Christmas just isn't for kids? I mean, I know it is for kids when they're little, you know, and the whole idea of breaking and entering, leaving presents, and reindeer with birth defects is really appealing, you know, and so I, I, I get on But we all get over that, right? If you have little kids that are into that, but they get over it, they become teenagers, and when they become teenagers on Christmas morning, they want to sleep in and all they want is money. And I, let me tell you something, that's not all negative, because that's pretty much what I want <laughs> for Christmas, and so, right? So it's kind of nice, we all cooperate on that. Like, what time are we going to open presents? I don't know, 11.30, I'm in, right? And so here's $100, Merry Christmas, now let's all go watch Disney Plus. And so like, it, it changes. But then we become adults. Why are we still drawn to it? Is it because we're manipulated? Am I manipulating you right now? Can you be manipulated? Is it because we're uneducated? You know, the magi, the magi are not the shepherds. Shepherds are uneducated and don't have a lot to live for, frankly. That's not these guys. Is it because you're uneducated and you don't have a lot to live for? I'm not, I'm not uneducated. I have way more education than is possibly useful. Okay. Or is it because it's real? It's not an old story. It's not a bunch of figurines on your piano. It's not a myth. And could it be the reason that you don't outgrow it? Because it's real. Because God really did show up. He really did put skin on.
He really did come to rescue us. He really does love you. He really did take the first step to the cross when he stepped into the manger. And he beckons. He beckons. He's not hiding. He's not out to get you. He would have got you. He beckons. And when we trust and follow, and when we kind of mute the noise, and we follow what God's doing in our lives, we're always going to wind up in front of Christ. Guys, if you've never bowed your knee to Jesus, every single person in the Christmas narrative bowed their knee to Jesus. If you've never bowed your knee to Jesus, see, it's kind of a point. And Christmas is weird because Christmas doesn't really confront us. Christmas doesn't really convict us. Christmas doesn't like flash out a list of our sins. Christmas beckons us. You should come see this. If you've never interacted with Christ that way, boy, I encourage you to do it. Agree with God about who he says you are. You and I are sinners. We, by nature, our sin nature, we stand in rebellion against God. The Bible says that. Super clear about it. It comes natural to us. The thing we do the easiest and most frequently is sin against each other. Nobody has to teach us to do it. We just know how. So we're sinners. So I agree with God about what he says about me. And then the good news is I agree with God about what he says about himself. Jesus said, not Jeff, Jesus. He said, I'm the way. I'm the way. I'm truth. I'm life. Nobody comes to the Father unless you come through me. That's why I showed up, to make sense to you. Ultimately, to lay my life down for you. I'm going to pay a price for something I, I, I didn't do because you owe a price you can't pay for something you did do. You sinned. I didn't. And Christmas is the first step to that cross. And bowing our knee to Jesus. Somebody asked me last night, I said, what's it mean to bow your knee to Jesus? Bowing my knee to Jesus is me just agreeing with all of that. I need a rescuer. I cannot save myself. I, can, I cannot make life work. There's this curiosity it has to be solved. And the star has led me to the Savior, and he is my Savior. He's not my good thought. He's not my moral compass. He's not the completion of a healthy lifestyle. He's my Savior who's going to rescue me from the sin that the Bible says I'm trapped and dead in. So the Bible says to receive Christ as Savior, all I do is ask. All I do is ask. I agree with God about what he says about me. I agree with God with what he says about himself. And then I bow my knee. Jesus, I will follow you.
I want my sins forgiven. I, I, I agree and believe in who you are. And you pray that prayer. And it doesn't matter what your words are. God doesn't care about what you say. He cares about what you mean. So from your heart to God's heart, you have that conversation. He'll cut through your vocabulary. Don't worry about it. Because he looks on the heart. And when the star takes us to our Savior, and we bow the knee to our Savior, now like the point, the story of Christmas becomes complete with, within our lives. And our moment of wonder becomes a moment of wonder. Look who God is. Look at what God did. That is this, and this is what what God wants to do in me, right? Okay. Band's going to settle in, and as they do, what if we just be still for a little bit? So why, why, what if we just, like, close our eyes and put our, kind of our heads down a little bit, set the phones down, and, and just be still for a second? And what if you pray, and maybe you're bowing your knee, asking Jesus to forgive you of your sins, Maybe you're just pausing and, and remembering who we're worshiping this Christmas season. Or maybe your curiosity is just on fire and, and you say, you know what? I'm going to load up the camels. I dare you. I double dog dare you to load up the camels. See what's out there. What do you got to lose? Right? Whatever it is, what if you just spent a minute with God and kind of gave him that freedom in your life, Okay. A band will help us do that. I'll pray and they'll settle in. Jesus, love you. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for compelling us, drawing us, pulling us to yourself. You're not a far off God. You're not a God that we have to be afraid of. You are Emmanuel. You are with us. And so God, in these moments, would you, would you be real and would you help us to reach out to you? For those of us, God, who need to accept your salvation, would you press in? God, would you on our hearts and on our minds just press in hard and so that today is the day, this is the moment that, uh, that you draw us to yourself. For those of us who are distracted, God, bring us back to who you are and to worship. And for the curious, Lord, would you give us the, would you, would you brighten the star, so to say? Just draw us and, and work us and give us the courage to begin our journey. Wherever we're at, Holy Spirit, in our, our individual lives, in this individual moment, would you meet us here and do the work that only you can do? Be with us now, Jesus, in your name.